Hello, I'm Gordon Buchanan and welcome to Beneath the Beerbub, the conservation and communities podcast from JAMA International. In this series, we're exploring the vital connection between communities and wildlife in conservation projects in Africa and around the world. Why do communities matter? They matter because they're the ones with the most to lose when wildlife conservation is done poorly. They're the ones sharing land and resources with wildlife. They're the ones with generations of culture inextricably tied to these beautiful wild animals and ancient landscapes. In my 30-year career as a wildlife cameraman, I've seen firsthand how the threat of extinction hangs over our planet's species, habitats, and ecosystems. As our climate and economies face increasing pressure, now is the time for action. If we're going to successfully avert the dual threats of biodiversity loss and climate crisis, the key lies in the learnings, expertise, and participation of local communities while respecting their rights and lived experiences. In today's episode, I'm talking with the inspirational Dr. Morangels Mbiza of Wildlife Conservation Action in Zimbabwe. Morangels has dedicated her life to protecting the livelihoods of rural African communities in human wildlife conflict and is world renowned for her work with lions and other large carnivores. Let's talk conservation beneath the baobab. More angels, thank you very much for joining me. Where are you at the moment? You don't appear to be out in the field. Uh, I'm currently in Harare, which is the capital city of Zimbabwe, and I'm very happy to be here. I, I know a very good Indian restaurant in Harare. <laughs> uh, I was in Zimbabwe just uh, the end of last year and on the way out. So we spent six weeks filming wild dogs out in the bush. And then on the last night, we went to this lovely, <laughs> lovely Indian restaurant. So are you from are you from Harare? Uh, I'm not originally from Harare. So I, I grew up in a small town uh, called Chiredzi, which is in the low veld. Uh, in, of Zimbabwe, but uh, now I'm spending part of my time in Arare if I'm not in the field, yes. So are you are you a country girl or a city girl? I'm, I'm actually a bush girl, so like bush, bush, <laughs> bush. <laughs> Can you tell me about your mission for Wildlife Conservation Action? And when did you set it up and why did you set it up? I set up Wildlife Conservation Action in 2018, and uh, our mission is to build the capacity of local communities so that they are better able to coexist with wildlife, develop local alternative livelihoods, and also increase the benefits that they get from living with wildlife. The reason that I formed Wildlife Conservation Action was because during my, my PhD and also during my, my entire career, I realized that there was more of a focus on species conservation and local communities who live with wildlife were a bit neglected in that equation. And so the focus of wildlife conservation action is mainly around local communities and their coexistence with wildlife. So Zimbabwe is home to uh, thousands and thousands of lots of amazing species, uh, mammals and insects and, and birds, plants. It's an incredible country. When it comes to 
human-wildlife conflict, what are the key species? Here in Zimbabwe, we have elephants. They are a key species when it comes to human-wildlife conflict. They destroy crop fields and sometimes a household can lose all their crop from just one raid by elephants and, and that would make them food insecure at the end of the day because they won't have anything to feed their families. We also have lions, one species that is causing conflict here in Zimbabwe and across the continent where lions kill livestock. And we also have other species like crocodiles. They mainly kill and injure people. And we, we also have other smaller species that also contribute to human wildlife conflict. We have baboons, hyenas. They are also uh, a threat to community livelihoods. Yeah. I, I remember I was working in Kenya a few years ago and we went out to meet a family that was living kind of out in a rural area and they had had elephants come through the previous night and every single one of their crops was completely destroyed um, just in a single evening. And they managed to chase the, the elephants away, but just in a couple of hours, the damage was just immense. Yes, it can be enormous and can have huge impacts, especially for these communities. They are rural communities and they are often the poorest people in society. They don't have any other uh, means or source of income to help feed their families and, and look after themselves. Yeah, I think the, sort of, the, the focus on conservation historically, it's just been about the species and it feels like the communities living along, alongside these animals have been an, an afterthought. Is that your experience? Yes, yes, definitely. And I think one of the things that some people who do not live alongside wildlife don't understand is that in these protected areas, there are no fences. So there is no separation between people and wildlife. These communities who live with wildlife and also play an important role in their conservation are often neglected, but they bear the costs of conservation because they are part of the, the conservation efforts, but they get very little benefits and they get very little help in terms of protecting themselves against dangerous wildlife species. Yeah, I think a lot of people that may have visited different countries in Africa to, to have a wildlife experience or wildlife holiday might go to a big national park and they see the, the animals but there's so much wildlife across Africa that is sort of living you know living side by side with local communities you said previously that local communities should be at the forefront of the solutions to the challenges have communities been receptive to that are they welcoming this opportunity to be involved in that way Yes, so I, I think there's a misconception that communities, local communities, don't like conservation, don't like wildlife species. But in actual fact, they know the importance of, of wildlife species and they want to be involved. And the communities that we have been working with, they are very receptive to the idea and participating. And they are involved in the planning of conservation efforts, in the planning of human wildlife conflict mitigation efforts. And they are also involved in the implementation of projects. There is a need for us to continue to engage with these local communities and come up with solutions that are suited to them, solutions that they come up with themselves. It's really important for us to, to really engage with the communities and have their mm -hmm. buy-in and support 
and I think that can really have a huge impact on conservation of, of wildlife species as well as the development of these poor rural communities. Yeah. Um, yes, it's not that communities don't like living alongside wildlife. They just don't like to be ignored. So it's amazing actually to get people involved and for to give local people that opportunity to come up with their own solutions because those people know better than anyone else where these kind of where conflict occurs. So what does coexistence look like? Because that's a word that we kind of talk a lot about, kind of community living with wildlife, potentially dangerous animals. It's not about putting animals behind fences. It's about living together in harmony, hopefully. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, so so that's the aim. Like, as I said, there is no separation. So these local communities will continue to live alongside wildlife. But if we have a coexistence, then we have a situation where people can live in harmony with, with the wildlife and the wildlife can also live in harmony with people. A situation where there is reduced conflict, where there is reduced tensions, where there are reduced losses from either side. So that's the situation that we are working towards. A community that is happy to live with wildlife and we also have a healthy population of wildlife in that same space. In the case of elephants, can you give me some examples of how you're trying to mitigate that, that conflict? Yes, so with elephant conflict, because they usually raid crops, they can destroy like an entire field in an evening, as you said. So we, we work with these farmers to find ways that they can use to protect their crop fields. So some of the ways that we are using are the chili fences or chili bricks. So we just use the chili as a deterrent for elephants. So we can put chili strings around the crop fields. And when elephants come, once they smell the chili, then they can just go back. Or once they smell the smoke from these burning chili bricks, then they can go back into the protected area. And in that way, the conflict is reduced or is eliminated. We are also working around just raising awareness, educating the communities, because elephants don't only destroy crops, they also injure people, they also kill people. So here in Zimbabwe, we have had like many cases of people being killed by elephants while they are going about their own business. So we also raise awareness around better ways that they can live alongside elephants, like avoid walking by themselves, avoid walking in the night or walking in secluded areas. So we, we, we are also working around uh, raising awareness. And in doing that, we avoid retaliatory killing as well of elephants. So sometimes when a conflict incident happens, then you have people retaliate and then kill the elephant. So in that way, we also protect the elephants. And also in some cases when a conflict happens or when somebody is killed, the wildlife authorities have no choice but to put down that elephant. And so if we minimize those incidences, then we are also saving the elephants and protecting community livelihoods and lives at the same time. Yeah, I was working in some of the concessions surrounding the Masai Mara and there was lots of elephant conflict there. And I would say the vast majority of cases that the team were responding to weren't poaching incidents. It was these retaliatory acts that people had had their crops destroyed or elephants were coming through their their villages. And yeah, that's where the, the, the conflict arose. It wasn't all about 
you know, people out poaching elephants for ivory? People end up retaliating in, in various ways. So they can retaliate by killing the, the animal that has caused the conflict, or they can retaliate by going inside the protected area and poaching, or they can retaliate by just not being involved in any conservation efforts so they can just revolt and not participate in some of the conservation efforts happening in the area. Yeah. In the case of lions, what sort of actions are being implemented to avoid conflict with them? Yes, so in the areas that we are working in, we have a team of community guardians local people that work for our project. So one of the ways that they prevent the conflict from happening is they walk around the communities monitoring for spores, for lion movements in the area. And once they pick up a spore or once they hear of a sighting from the community, then they can warn the entire community Mm -hmm. so that they can be aware that a lion is in the area so they can better take care of themselves and take care of their livestock. So it's one of the ways that we are preventing the conflict. And these community guardians, they also go around within the households and teach the households how to build better livestock crawls because some of the incidences of livestock attacks by lion happen inside the livestock crawls where livestock are kept. And if these crows are weak, then a lion can easily get in and kill the livestock. So they help the communities to strengthen these crows. And we are seeing that it's working because since we started, we have not had any incidences happening inside the livestock crows. Another method that we are using are predator-proof mobile bombers. We give them to farmers and they put their livestock in the mobile bombers. They are made of canvas material. So because of that canvas material, when the lion comes, it can't see inside. It won't attack the livestock. Because it's mobile, it means that the farmer can move it from one place to another. So the idea is that the farmer would put it in the crop field that is close to his homestead, and then he can move the the mobile bomber from one area of the crop field to another, and eventually he can fertilize like the entire field. Because when the livestock are inside the bomber, they would leave dung, and the dung mixes with the soil and fertilizes the soil. In areas where the bomber was, the crop yield is more than the yield in areas where there was no bomber. Mm. We are also uh, using geofencing. So we put GPS collars on lions and when they cross the boundary of the protected area, we get a message and then we can warn the community to say there's a lion that is approaching the community. And we can also mobilize our community guardians and also other villagers in those areas so that they can make noise and push the lion back into the protected Mm. area. The mobile boma is such a Great idea because it is so simple. I'll just explain for the, the listeners, a boma is a, a corral for, for keeping livestock in. So to, and traditionally, a boma would be made out of acacia thorns and it's sort of quite a labour-intensive operation. But to have a mobile boma is just... I love that because it is so simple and so straightforward. Who, who came up with that particular idea? Alan... Salvory came up with that idea through their holistic management institutes. 
It has now spread across the country and, and the continent as well. You use just like a few poles to to secure the mobile bomb, and then you don't have to cut down trees to, to make that coral. I think other projects as well uh, across the country and the continent also have seen more than 90% success in reducing livestock predation. There's obviously benefits to people in trying to limit the conflict with wild animals. But are there other parts of the project that are kind of income generating initiatives? Yes. So we, with our human wildlife conflict mitigation measures that we, we implement, we always try to find a way to include some aspects of improving livelihoods or, or community development. Even with the chili fences, these farmers would grow the chilies and then they can use some of the chilies to put on chili fences or to make chili bricks. They can then sell the extra chilies to gain an income. Even the livestock itself, it's a source of income for these communities because they can sell them and get money to buy food, to send their children to school. They can eat the meat as well as the the crops. Uh, It's a source of livelihood for them. All the different measures that we have put in place contribute towards developing these communities, contribute towards making their communities more resilient. Yeah, and I suppose that you've got to give local communities reasons to protect wildlife. There has to be sort of some benefit for them. And I suppose with the mobile boma, as you said, being able to fertilize the land in a way that actually previously they hadn't, they wouldn't have been able to. So there's an added, added benefit. I was watching you on, on YouTube and you said that you, although you are sort of a bush girl, you didn't grow up watching wildlife. You weren't surrounded by elephants and, and, and lions as a child. Yes, so I grew up in a small town. It's called Chiredzi and it's close actually to the second largest national park here in Zimbabwe, which is Gonarejo National Park. It's about 70 kilometers or so from, from Chiredzi. But I never had an opportunity to, to go and visit. And so I knew nothing about wildlife conservation. I knew nothing about conservation being a career that somebody can take. So I just went into conservation without all that uh, background knowledge and without really growing up with that idea that I want to be a wildlife conservationist. I actually wanted to be a psychologist when I was growing up, just wanting to help children especially. And I only started to learn about it when I was doing my master's program. And I became fascinated. I then decided to do a project for my master's on, on African wild dogs. So it's one of my like special species because that's the first species that I, I studied. So I, I really love wild dogs. <laughs> me too. Me too. I, that recent trip to, we were, I was in Manapools in, in Zimbabwe and I was blown away by them. They are just one of the most incredible species that I've ever encountered at the end of each day that was almost you could set your watch it's sort of six o'clock they would be fast asleep they'd get <laughs> up have a stretch and go off hunting and ev- within by quarter past they would have caught something so every single time that they went hunting yeah. in 15 minutes they would they would have success which was just incredible really exciting very difficult to to follow but they are an exceptional exceptional animal 
So you, you're the firstborn in your family. How did your parents feel about you <laughs> moving into conservation? <laughs> yeah, my, my family was really uh, surprised. Actually, my, my father wanted me to be a doctor. But I, I think now they are really proud of the journey that I have traveled and, and all the things that I've managed to do and accomplish. I hope I, I've made them proud. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. How many siblings do you have? So I, I have three brothers. So that has probably given you a, a lot of experience in actually making your voice heard. So that's, yeah. Yes. <laughs> there are not many women in conservation in, in Africa. Was that a challenging part of your journey? Yes, that was very challenging. So I, I started my journey in conservation about 14 years ago or so. And I, I think at, at that time also, there were very few women in conservation, especially black women. So it, it was uh, difficult to really find a mentor or, or somebody to, to look up to. So at times it was just so lonely because I couldn't find somebody to talk to, to get advice from. And I'm glad to see that now things have sort of like changed for the better. And we are starting to see more women in conservation. We are starting to get support from the male counterparts and from, from other organizations. They are now focusing more on cultivating that talent among women and encouraging more women to get involved in conservation. And it's something that I'm also really passionate about. It's something that we are also working on as an organization. We, we also aim to get as many women into conservation and mentor them and provide the support that they need in their careers. Yeah. Um, you, well, you're a fan fantastic ambassador for conservation and for women. I imagine, you know, across the world, there are challenges that women face that men simply have absolutely no, no concept of. Is that an ongoing challenge? For example, if you go into a rural area and you're speaking to communities, I imagine most of the community leaders are, are men. Are you facing an ongoing problem? Yeah, it is a, a challenge, uh, especially in the African society where women are inferior to men, uh, especially when it comes to leadership positions or, or even like contributing to knowledge and, and discussions. Women are not really expected to do that. And in some communities, when you get there and men don't really appreciate to like, seeing you talking or, or giving your, your input to discussions because they believe that uh, women should just keep quiet and, and listen and do whatever is being said. Sometimes it's also new to them to see like a woman like taking charge and leading. But uh, I would say that I have seen an improvement over the years. There, there is a change definitely and we are seeing more women not only in conservation, in other fields as well, just taking those leadership positions, being able to lead even in the local leaderships, uh, you know, the chiefs, the, the, the headmen. It has mainly been men, but now we, we have a few women that are chiefs that are, are headmen for, for their villages. 
And I think conservation itself, like it's a demanding field. And and sometimes even when hiring, there was an incident some years back where, where a colleague of mine was trying to get a job. And then she was told that because you are a woman, we can't hire you because after a few years you want to get married, then you will leave, you know. So just those um, issues and misconceptions around women in conservation is, is still a challenge that we are facing. Yeah. Technology is something that has revolutionized the world, I suppose, in the last, over the last three decades in my career, it has been amazing the advances in technology. I grew up pre, pre-internet, sort of even pre-satellite phones. <laughs> and the, the, the interesting thing is when you go to rural parts of Africa, not just Africa, but sort of, you know, far-flung corners of the, the world, people that have very, very little, but one thing that they may have is a mobile phone. So I suppose people in rural areas, if they have a phone and they have a phone signal, that is an, an amazing, very efficient way of actually monitoring animals and spreading word to, to, to neighbouring communities if you've got elephants that are, that are moving through an area. Yes, that, that's true. In areas we are working in, there is limited network connection, but we, we do get information from the community when they see an, an, a wildlife species or when they see spore, they always report to us and then we can go on and investigate. It also is a way that we, we also uh, communicate with the community so we can send messages via SMS or via WhatsApp and, and communicate to them whether it's about a wildlife species being in the area or it's about educating them and making them aware of the various issues. And also the social media is playing an important role in, in our work as well because we, we need to share this information with people across the country, across the world, especially around human wildlife conflict. It's not an issue that people really understand and appreciate. We've talked a lot about rural communities but really we're, we're a global community and I think everybody has to be on the same page and realize the importance of local people living alongside with their voices being heard and, and them coming up with with their solutions and I think the the, the betterment of of people's lives um conservation is something that you know really should transcends race transcends gender so it's kind of it's really important work that you're you're doing and you've had a lot of success in a place called is it Nyami Nyami? Yes yes. Has, has it been easy to work with the, the community there? Yeah at first it was a, a challenge uh, because this community in, in Nyami Nyami has been facing conflict with lions for, for a very long time and their attitudes towards lions and other wildlife species were very negative and even the, the engagement with these communities was difficult just to bring them to their table to discuss these issues. The discussions were, were often heated, ended up in arguments and all those finger pointing but we, we eventually won over the community. We eventually got to sit down with them and agree on what we should do together and how each one of us can play a role in minimizing the conflict with lions. 
now we we have seen a huge change in in their attitudes since we started the project we have seen that the community is doing their part in minimizing the the conflict with lions they are also helping us even with with information of where lions are and they also help when our community guardians uh, go and take and collect data on incidences that happen they provide that data which we then use to come up with better uh, mitigation measures and solutions so they are very cooperative now and and we have a good working relationship with them yeah no it's i suppose for for so long those communities have not had a voice and it, the importance of just of listening building trust, empowering people, that is hugely significant. In an ideal world, we don't live in an ideal world, sadly. What's your vision of the future when it comes for rural communities that live alongside wildlife? We should really put these local communities right at the centre of our conservation efforts because without them, like we won't succeed, we won't be able to serve the species that we want to serve, we won't be able to, to protect the lions because these communities uh, play an important role and um, they, they are bearing the cost of living with wildlife. So we should uh, work towards finding solutions for these communities, increasing the benefits that they get from living with wildlife. And I think once we start to work towards that, towards the coexistence that we talked about, then we won't even have to put too much funding into things like poaching and other species conservation programs because the the community would play that important role of protecting the species Mm -hmm. and uh, providing information around poaching and just being part of all those conservation efforts, but they should be put at the center and they should benefit, whether it's directly or indirectly, because it's their heritage and it's their right. You're saying that rather than spending money on anti-poaching activities, you should put that money into incentivizing local communities. Exactly. So once we start to incentivize these local communities to protect wildlife, then we won't need to to protect the wildlife against the local communities because they would understand the importance of, of this wildlife because they will be benefiting from the wildlife. They won't need to go in and poach. And also because most of these poaching incidents are because these communities are trying to to earn a living. So once we incentivize these communities and improve their livelihoods, they won't have a need to go and poach. So so if we put money into incentivizing these local communities and into improving their livelihoods, we won't need to put money into anti-poaching efforts. Here, here, that's great. Is it possible to have active functioning conservation without considering people? No, no, not at all. Most of the challenges that we are facing in conservation are because of people. So we have habitat fragmentation, even poaching, uh, human wildlife conflict. They are all because of people. So once we involve the people and we turn it around and, and put the people first and bring the people to the table to find solutions, in a way we are also dealing with all these challenges that are 
facing species conservation. Yeah. I mean, for as long as I can remember my entire life, conservation for, for global organizations, it's the focus has always been on wildlife and it hasn't worked. And it's great to, to hear that these initiatives are really kind of making headway and giving people that opportunity to improve their lives, to live in harmony, as close to harmony as you can get when you share your, your world with elephants and, and lions. But that's amazing. Keep up the keep up the great work and I wish you all the very best of luck in the future. Thank you so much, Gordon. Thank you very much, More Angels, for talking to me. I am so inspired by the vision she had setting up this organisation and growing it to such an exciting, impactful presence in communities and in the conservation space. It's so great to hear that she's also creating opportunities for the conservationists of the future to get experience in the field and begin their careers. I found it really interesting to discuss the holistic three-pronged approach to preventing wildlife conflict, mitigating it when it does happen, and supporting communities in developing alternative or improved livelihoods and resources. If you'd like to find out more about wildlife conservation actions in Zimbabwe, you can find links in the show notes. Or just visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more amazing international projects. If you'd like to listen to our next episode, make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favourite app. JAMA International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this podcast, and I strongly suggest you do, please do so with the hashtag BeneathTheBeabub on social media. As you know, Beabub is spelled B-A-O-B-A-B. Positive dialogue and sharing ideas can happen anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Why don't you start a conversation with a friend, a family member, a neighbour, or even a complete stranger? It's good to talk. I'm Gordon Buchanan, and I hope you'll join me next time beneath the Beabub.